Welcome to the One of a Kind podcast, the show where we explore the stories we tell ourselves and the moments that got us here. I'm Nisi Duran, and I hope today's conversation gives you something to smile about. Welcome to the 15th episode of the One of a Kind podcast. We are continuing our Google streak with Hannah Hunt. Hannah currently works in sustainability communications for Google. She has spent her entire professional career at Google, primarily working on the global communications team. Hannah is originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland, and she came to the U.S. to work on a secret Google project that would become a formative experience for all of us. That secret project became known as Google Helpouts, and even though the project was shut down, we walked away with lifelong friendships. Hannah left university in Belfast with a law degree that focused on alternative justice and conflict resolution, a lifelong interest and passion of hers following a childhood that spanned the end of the conflict in Northern Ireland. After spending eight years in the Bay Area of California, she now lives in Atlanta with her husband and two girls. In this conversation, we discuss what happens when you don't have a blueprint for your career the role that fear can play in our career choices, and the inevitability of midlife crises. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Google is a really complicated place, you know? Like, we, it has been, it has given me, like, some of the greatest relationships, the greatest friendships, like, the best experiences. I've never worked anywhere else. I, what? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, my whole entire professional life has been at Google. I left college. I did, I, I think you know this, I did a law degree at, in Belfast. Um, and I, I was like, so determined to be a human rights lawyer and like save the world and like do justice work and like peace and reconciliation work having grown up in Belfast, like such a passion of mine. And then I, yeah, I was like destined to do that work. And then the recession happened in 2011 and everybody that I was talking to at that time was like, the law is like a really hard place to be now. Like you should just like maybe take a stable job for a little minute. And a friend of mine referred me to Google without me knowing. He wrote, rewrote my entire CV and submitted it as a referral at Google. He was at Google at the time. and. um then I got a call from a recruiter. I was doing my finals and she was like, hey, Hannah, it's Emer at Google. You know, just wanted to talk to you about your application to join like that ads team. And I was like, I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> she was like, okay, well, um, your friend Gavin like submitted a referral for you. And so like, would love for you to come down and chat about this, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, sure. Like I'll come to Dublin and have an interview. I spent a couple of years in the policy bin as a lot of like graduates did, like overqualified graduates, like taking phone calls from AdWords customers for a while and like in the policy bin, all that stuff. Wild. So you've been at Google your entire career. Have you ever thought about leaving? All the time. And, yeah, and keeps I, you. I think like, I think more so in the last year than ever before. I think it's changed, right? Like it's not the place that it was when I joined. It's not the place that it was whenever you and I worked together on that like secret special project that like truly was such a unique experience. It's definitely been like 
a transition for sure, especially over the course of last year. Like, do having those layoffs like really, really shook the culture of the company in a way that I've never experienced it in my twelve years. I think that it really put a fear in people. You know, this could happen again any minute, and like, who's to say it won't be me? Because look at the people that we let go. Like, there is absolutely no logic to it in my mind of like the people that we lost and I think especially seeing people like you being let go it like gave me so much fear because I was like oh my god like if that could happen to Sylvia like yeah but I am definitely not safe like if Sylvia is somebody that we can like afford to lose like well like I'm I'm definitely not safe. Um, but to answer your question of why I keep staying despite all of the challenges, um, I'm still learning, and I'm still being challenged, and I'm still growing, um, and I'm still managing to find myself in places where I'm getting like new opportunities. And if that wasn't happening, if I was feeling stagnant. I would definitely be going. I think that this year has forced me to recognize that at the end of the day, this is just a job and Google is a huge corporation and they don't necessarily care about me or my feelings or my family or any of my personal circumstances. The people do, like the people that I work with do, but as an entity, like, Maybe actually listening to one of your podcasts helped me process a little bit because I feel like you maybe talked about this a bit and it helped me like, yeah, put that like make that calculus a little bit myself as well. Um, and it's a really hard thing to reckon with. Like, I'm sure you went through the same process. Like, yeah, I mean, I still love Sundar. (laughs) You know, so like I love him. He's great, but I, I do, I I agree with you. I think it's. The individual people that if you're lucky enough to find a group that believes in you, you believe in them, that's magical. Yeah. And then there's still the real world implications of the economic climate and the big bets that need to be made for the long term. And individuals are not going to play a part in that. Um, right. I had a question for you. So you mentioned fear that would happen this mm-hmm. year in the company and the culture changing. It led to an increase in fear in your perception of yourself, but also of others. What role do you think fear should play in this kind of environment? Like, is what are the positives and the negatives? Or do you think there's no room for it? I like to tell myself that I'm not not motivated by fear and that it doesn't play a role in my calculus and my decision-making. It's like the fear of losing my job, honestly. Like, that, that is, like, my biggest fear, probably. Because I'm the primary breadwinner for our family. Like, I hold a lot of responsibility in having an income. Um, So, yeah, the fear of losing my job, it's like never, ever something that occurred to me before this year. Correct. When January happened, I was like, oh my gosh. Like, and and I think, I think that it, I think that that fear has increased my tolerance of bullshit. You know, like it's, we're all having these conversations where we're like, 
work sucks. Like this is all awful. Like we're all like working ourselves to the bone. Like this is horrendous, but at least we have a job. Like, and, and it seems like that is the qualifier for everything that we're all having to tolerate right now. Um, so yeah, I think, I think honestly, fear has played a huge role in my decisions this year. Man. Yes. I, as you were saying that I remembered, I was processing with my therapist (laughs) that I'm the kind of person who my whole life I've tried to follow all the rules. I know this about you. Say that again. I know this about you. (laughs) I followed all the rules and it was because I also didn't have the playbook, right? Like I didn't have anyone to look up to, to say, how do you, what are like different ways to navigate this? What are, how can I play around with these rules to where I'm pushing the boundaries a little bit? No, it was make sure you're right down the middle. Don't deviate at all. Yes. Make, leave no stone unturned. Like make sure that everybody understands that you're following the rules and you're kicking butt every time, like at work. Right. And I was doing that. I was a very high performer, got a lot of really cool opportunities. And then it didn't matter. You know, it was like, I did all the quote unquote right things. And then I lost my job. And so she and I were working through how that really shook me where it was, I thought I was safe. I thought if I just followed the rules, I was safe. And suddenly the reality is I never was safe, right? right? We actually always had that fear in the back. We just didn't really understand it or recognize it, right? Or acknowledge it. And now that it's like staring at you, then the question is like, what do you do with that fear? And what I'm hearing from you is that fear does become a little bit of a motivator or that fear changes your calculus of what decisions are. And I think for me, I think that fear is saying like, I can't get all of my identity from one thing. And I Mm. also need to be more of a critical thinker around like, if it actually, if I'm never actually safe, right. And I'm in a job and someone is BSing, will I be more likely to say like, actually, I don't agree with that. You know what I mean? Because ultimately it maybe doesn't even matter if I I think it's the right thing. stirring stuff up that's like everyone's like you stir it up (laughs) honestly I think it would be so powerful coming from somebody like you because I know that you wouldn't stir it up unless you felt super convicted to do it you know and and actually like this this leader that I worked for before this reorg is that person right like she doesn't she doesn't speak unless she has something to say when she says something everybody listens and I think you're the same way like you're that person I think also like thank you when you you're not going to stir shit up unless it's worth stirring up but also like you're not going to say something just to have your voice heard like everything that you say is smart and additive and like actually of value um but I was actually looking at that email that I sent you while you were talking about this because I so like you and I have been going back and forth about when to have this conversation. And I guess like we first started talking about this back in June. Yes. And um, since then I went to this podcast recording with a bunch of dudes, three white dudes. And I really like love and respect these guys. However, they talked at one point during this podcast recording about how wasn't until they were in their mid twenties that they realized that 
they that everything wouldn't just fall into place for them that they no longer the bubble of their expectations of being successful burst for them whenever they were in their mid-20s and I was listening to this conversation thinking imagine going through your life until you were in your mid-20s expecting that you would be successful and that everything would fall into place for you what no what and I was like I cannot identify with that on any single level like and I mean talk about you know not having a blueprint for what you're doing like I did law at university because the only options for smart kids were and I wasn't even really that smart you are but that's okay (laughs) well the only options were law or medicine and I couldn't do science or maths to save my life so you know I went I went and did law um and actually, I really loved art and design, and I like so, so, so loved it. And I kind of wanted to go to art college, but I knew that there would be no job that would come out of that. So I went and I did, I did a law degree. There was no blueprint for what I was thinking I wanted to do. Um, and then, like, I made this crazy decision to go and work for a tech company. I ended up in like an advertising department doing like sales support. And I was like, what am I doing? Um, and I, I think that the approach that I've taken to my career is to just like keep pushing doors and saying yes to every single opportunity that I ever get ever. I never, ever in a million years expected to have the life that I have. Like I, I this life was never in my future. Like I... I don't have any women in my life at home, like where I grew up in Belfast. I don't know any women who weren't teachers or mothers full time. Like, wow. I had no, I had no, literally no blueprint for it. I just blows my mind that, that like, these three guys were like, well, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized that like, maybe I have to work for something. It's like, oh, okay. I was going to ask for her clerking. So these are three white American males. Correct. That are where did they grow up or what part of the US Atlanta. are they? They're from Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. And so and uh-huh. was that their takeaway that now they have to work for something? Or was it because of the way that I heard you initially was just that at in their mid-20s I realized there was more life was more complex. And so it's nothing yes. was a guarantee. Like what was their actual like takeaway? Cause I want to ask you about that. Yeah. And and I mean I I'm like way for simplifying it. And I hope that no, that's well, okay. I'll 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 listen to this Um I think their takeaway was that like really like the the idea of like how entitlement has changed generation to generation, right? Like I think that for them um, growing up as white guys in the South, like you just had to work hard and you would get a good life. Or so they were told by their parents who were able to live that, you know? And totally. and I think that I do think that there has been like a generational shift from our parents' generation to our generation in white America where people are waking up to the fact that like, you know, opportunity isn't equal. Things are not going to just be handed to you on a silver platter if you're a white dude anymore. Like 
it, everything isn't necessarily going to just fall into place. Like life isn't easy. Like it's not going to just come at you. Like mortgage rates are much higher. Like college degree isn't worth what it was anymore. Like, you know, like maybe you're, maybe you're going to have to have your expectations adjusted a little bit. And like, you're not, you're not entitled to like a great middle-class life just because your parents got one. I just didn't grow up with that. I mean, not to say that like middle-class white guys who I grew up with weren't also entitled, but I, it was just different. Like, I, I don't think that like, I think that the American flavor of entitlement is slightly different. Yeah. I think I resonate with them a little bit in the sense of, I mean, I, I thought it was going to be a long shot for me to be successful, but I, I did believe mm. in this like American dream of you put your head down, you do really well in school, you get to a good college, you know, do really well in that college, get a job. And if you just follow the rules, like things should work out for you. Um, yeah. And then of course there's this added element of, you know, if you're a person of color and, you know, there's like, um, they call it the bamboo ceiling for Asian folks. Like there's right. all these things. Right. And when I was at YouTube at the time in one of the largest organizations within operations, like there was like no black managers and I, that like blew my mind. Right. And so there are still these limitations that even if you do all the right things, I have had an experience where you don't actually get the doors open for you, but right. still that is like this American ideal of you just work really hard. Like you're right. going to get that house. If right. you just work really right. hard, it's going to work out for you. And I guess my question is from, you know, from your perspective of what they shared about, how did they react? Like, did they react with anger with an understanding of like, oh, this is what everybody else feels like. Like, I'm just wondering mm. like what that yeah, sentiment yeah, yeah. looks like and yeah. how you felt about that. They all had midlife crisis. Like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They all left their jobs. Um, oh. and like genuinely, they, they like journeyed through a midlife crisis together. They all journeyed through this experience together of feeling like, hold on a minute. Like, what have I built my life upon? Like, what am I doing with my life now? Like, am I doing the right thing? And maybe I need to be doing something completely different. And, and truly like all of them have changed their jobs since then. So I'll debate if I leave this in or not, but. Okay. I'm going through a midlife crisis right now. Really? Yes. And I was pushing back against it for a long time because in popular culture, midlife crisis is presented as something like very negative, very cliche, like, oh my goodness. And I presented to my therapist. I said, you know, people are saying I'm going through midlife crisis, ha ha ha, but I'm not right. She was like, actually. <laughs> what does that look like for you? Well, so first she defined it for me. She said, there's nothing wrong with a midlife crisis. Everyone goes through it. Let me explain what it is. And she yeah. quoted Brene Brown. And then I read a bunch of stuff from Brene Brown too. Essentially, all that's happening is at the midpoint, which could be from like 35 to 50. People usually have it during that range, that, you know, yes. that, that age. Yes. You realize your mortality for one reason or another. And then you start to look at yourself and you say, This is who I am, but I have <gasps> all of these defense mechanisms that I've accumulated, like armor I've accumulated over the years because of how I was raised, how I grew up, the experiences I had. So for me, you know, also reflecting back to what you said, I say yes to everything at work in particular, mm. sometimes my personal life too, but it's because yeah. I had this fear of if I didn't say yes, that they would, the opportunities would fizzle out and they'd realize I wasn't mm. worth it, wasn't capable. And so I have all these ways that I go through the world to try to keep myself safe and try to yes. be protected. And then I got laid off. Right. And so then it was like yeah. this wake up call of like, actually, you know, I'm 
doing all these things, but I'm actually not as safe from the world as I think. But at the same time, I am safer than I was as a child because I have privilege, I have resources, et cetera. So then you do have this reckoning and you say, who do I actually want to be? Like, am I okay? More just, for me, that's not it. It's more of how do I want to show up in the world? Like, how do I want to deal with my, how do I want to be as a friend, as a parent, as a Mm. partner, as a daughter, as a sister, you know, Mm. who do I actually want to be? And am I, to quote a John Mayer line, um, (laughs) what does he say? Like, am I going to dim my lights for someone else? Something like that, right? Of like, am I not actually showing up like myself? I about that a lot too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's where I am right now. And I think um, I am really examining how do I approach work? How do I approach my free time? You know, how do I communicate? What do I expect out of people in my relationships? And am I getting what I deserve or what I want, what I need, right? Or am I always going to put my needs below everybody else's? Because that's kind of what I do. That's kind of what I do. I definitely know that about you too. Yeah. I, you know, I think that I was thinking about this a little bit recently because I think that this phase of our life, like the, your 30s, I feel like are such a difficult, testing, challenging, and formative time. I think that, you know, also having kids <laughs> really makes you question yourself a lot. Like it, it makes you examine your experience of childhood it makes you examine the way that you show up for your kids, the way that you talk to them, the way that you like coach them and nurture them. Like it, it, there are so many things that you're presented, I think in your thirties, particularly if you're a parent that make you examine so many things about yourself layer on top of that, like losing your job and having like your career rug pulled out from you. I can't imagine the layers and the depth of the questions that you've had to ask yourself over the course of the last 10, nine, nine, 10 months. Um, I, and I totally agree with you that I think that the culture, cultural perception of midlife crisis is so negative. And, and I actually know somebody who is going through a negative iteration of a midlife crisis and like making really poor decisions from the place of exactly what you're talking about which is like who am like it's almost like this person woke up one day and was like hold on a minute like who am I like I have completely lost touch with who I thought that I was going to be at this stage in my life like I actually don't know who I am anymore and I need to take some time to explore what that looks like and I think that it sounds to me like what you're doing is a very healthy way to process that question compared to what I think a lot of us associate with a midlife crisis, which is like buying a reckless car. (laughs) Yeah, like exactly. Like buying a very expensive car, like, you know, quitting your job and going, doing whatever. Just to affirm you that like, yeah, I think that there is a really healthy way to ask the questions that you're asking and to come out of it with like a deeper and much healthier relationship with the people that you really want to have that relationship with and yourself Um, and yourself. Exactly. Right. I love that. I love how you phrase that. Like the midlife crisis is figuring out what actually matters to you. I will say I, even the people that are doing like the buying the Porsches and stuff, like I have so much empathy for them because oh, totally. they're in so much probably pain and fear. And totally. I'm just lucky I have a therapist. 
who I've had for years at this point that can help me work through this overwhelming feelings. But sometimes people either don't have that or don't think they need it. And then they're just trying to, you know. I I actually do think that it points to the value of having that infrastructure in place before you get these massive questions hit you in the face, right? Like I first started, I I got a therapist for the first time whenever um, I actually, I think I might have told you this, I lost two cousins to mental health struggles within three weeks of each other, one on either side of my family. Since then, so I guess like going on three or three and a half years or so, um, I've had weekly sessions with my therapist. I don't know how I live my life without her. Like same, same. And I I have grown so much from doing therapy. Like my siblings will talk about it all the time. Like especially oh. my younger sisters. Like you're different. Like you're different. Like your ability to process stuff. Like your ability to deal with disappointment and grief and like hard things. I'm just so much more resilient now than I used to be without therapy. Like, I just, I feel like therapy just gives you a toolkit to like navigate stuff that's really, really difficult. Um, So I'm really glad that you have that. And I'm glad that you had it before all of this stuff started to really get difficult, you know? That's right. And I think, um, what did you say? You said a toolkit. I think it's also, as part of that toolkit, the biggest thing is, it's taught me to have compassion for myself, right? Because every, like you said, we're going through hard things all the time. And I feel like we're so hard on ourselves about it. You yes. Know? Like when we yeah. don't react perfectly. Um, That's right. I was going to ask you, cause you mentioned your, your siblings and I always, I don't, I don't think I've ever met your family, but I feel like I have. <laughs> cause I know. When you, same. I think when you went back after moving to the U S your dad like played a, a song and said my name or something like that. It was like a Christmas. Oh my gosh, yes, so I just feel like I know them and I love them. What did he, he was singing, was he singing in Spanish? I can't. Yeah. Right. Okay. So my dad is obsessed with the Spanish language, like speaks it rel- like relatively well. And yeah, you're right. For some reason he was singing a song about Sylvia and yeah, I, I videoed it and I sent it to you. And he said something like, thank you for being nice to my daughter or something like that. Oh, I was like, sweet. oh, so sweet. I was like, I love your family so much. I know. Um, they're so Anna. sweet. Thank you so much, Hannah. This was so much fun. Thank you. I'm going to set up more time with you in general because I, I feel like when that. I talk to you, I can analyze so many things in like a healthy, positive way. So. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> That's only because we both spent so much time in therapy. I'm thank serious. You, yes. Yes. I'm serious. Thank you for listening to the one of a kind podcast. This show was edited by my brother from the very same mother, Jose Duran. We have more episodes on the way. So please check us out wherever you get your podcasts.